0: What is going on, you guys? For this episode of the Cast, we're going to address a topic, the war in Ukraine, and a particular one issue, the United States military support for the Ukrainian government. And for this episode, I'm going to pose a question for you all to answer and ponder, and I'm going to answer a question because one of the remarkable things about the United States military and United States government support for the Ukrainian government is there seemingly has been virtually no debate on this particular topic. Yes, there has been some hand-wringing. There's been a few nuanced discussions. I've seen Tucker Carlson address certain things. Rand Paul has made a few comments, but there does not, seem to be anyone jumping up from the highest mountaintop saying, what the hell are we doing with this foreign policy? Because the foreign policy of the elite of this country are mind-blowingly incompetent. And I think they're giving horrible advice. And in fact, I think that they're playing Russian roulette with the future of the United States, as well as the future of our children and, and placing us in unnecessary risk relating to our foreign policy in Ukraine. And so I'm gonna to attempt to answer, answer that question. And what credentials do I have in this area? Zero, I'm just a learned observer. Um, but in terms of what I've seen on our, on our news sites, United States government, there's virtually no debate. So go on to the New York Times website today You'll see some updates on the war, but you will not see any crit- critical opinions relating to the war. Go to Fox News, same thing. They're not talking about it. Senator Mitch McConnell has said that we will support Ukraine as long as it takes, at whatever cost. And if you go to MSNBC, I was, or I'm sorry, NBC News, I was able to find one, editorial comment, opinion on this, and this was a critic who suggested that we should provide more offensive, and it's related to Patriot missiles in Ukraine, and that this author suggested that we should be providing offensive weapons so Ukraine could could strike deep into the heart of Russia, and that we should not wring our hands But instead, we should give even more offensive weaponry to the uh, Ukrainian people so they can strike deep into the heart of Russia, come what may damn the consequences. I think this is an extremely important topic. Um, I seemingly am a voice crying out in the wilderness on the topic. I I certainly haven't seen any mass parades. Um, I've seen very little public debate on this. So that's why I'm going to pose a question, and I want you all, and I want the foreign policy elite, or if you're in Ukraine, I want you to answer this question. Why should the United States support your conflict? Now, don't mistake the question. I am not, and this is one thing I want to make clear to all of you in Ukraine, I am not criticizing the justice of your cause. I am not sanctioning Russian aggression. I am not trying to start the Vladimir Putin fan club. I am not also a Russian mole. Trust me, I have no connections whatsoever to Russia. I don't even speak Russian. Um, So I am not attacking the justice of your cause. But the narrow question is why should the United States Support? What? Why is it in the United States' interest to provide offensive weaponry to your country and support your country to the tune of $100 billion? And the related question is that I will be a leading answer. I'll explain why I give a shit about this topic. It's because Russia does have nukes. And that is a game changer. Now, all the learned commentary that I've read has suggested that the risk remains low, but of course, there's no way to actually quantify that risk. And one could easily imagine a scenario where, even if it's less than one percent, that's a catastrophically high risk that occur could occur in one of two easily imaginable scenarios that our government is playing Russian roulette One, with. First off, let's assume that Ukraine with the big 800 pound gorilla standing behind it, the United States starts wanting to take some risks of its own knowing that the United States will act as a backstop and starts launching missiles either into civilian areas or into military bases but deep inside of Russia They've identified this as a red line. They then use tactical nukes. That is easy. That is an easy scenario to imagine. The other less likely scenario is that um, there's domestic upheaval in Russia and we see a, a, a toppling of Vladimir Putin. And all of a sudden we have a nation state similar to the early 90s, which has lost control of its nuclear stockpiles. Either in either scenario, It's a risk way too high. So I think that's where we are in terms of my discussion, my care, I want you to answer that question. I'm gonna attempt to answer why we should support. And of course, my view is I don't think that we should be providing military support to Ukraine. I do not think it's in the United States interest. And relating to why I care, it's because they have nukes. And there's seemingly virtually any debate about this other than, it's it's a remote possibility and that we can just assume that our government knows. So first off, I'm going to provide a little bit of an overview of the amount of money. I'm not going to get into the weeds of the types of weapons that we've provided. But the United States of America, and I received this information. It's readily available online. If you have any different numbers, you can certainly get this. This is for the Center of Strategic International Studies. You can Google virtually all this information. And yes, it's accurate. That's the way that we work. Um, and if you have any information to the contrary, feel, to, feel free to correct me. But as of 2022, the United States has, has, has allocated 68 billion commitment. And for FY 2023, we're going to seek an additional $37 billion. So we're talking about $100 billion of military aid. And I'm not going to get into the weeds, not military aid, but aid. And that can be broken down into specific weapons that we've provided, giving discretionary authority to Joe Biden to transfer certain military technologies, and then we can replenish those stockpiles. And then, of course, humanitarian aid and aid to the government itself sort of keep the lights on. And I'm not as opposed to that, but even that I have some concerns in particular in terms of direct aid to the government itself, um, as opposed to, of course, humanitarian aid. The United States should always be in the business of providing humanitarian aid. But first off, so so we're talking about $100 billion and there's seemingly no debate about this. No one cares, there's no protests, no one's in the streets. And And I am gonna go to Vietnam and a lot of you are gonna say, oh my God, this is, it's totally different. And of course it is. I get it, but I'm gonna deep dive. I'm gonna do a deep dive into one aspect of the timeline of Vietnam. And number two, yes, I'm gonna to go to the Munich conference of 1938 with Neville Chamberlain, because I think a lot of our incompetent foreign policy was some loser that went to Johns Hopkins that read the minutes of a correspondence between Neville Chamberlain and emissaries of Adolf Hitler, and they write their thesis paper on it, and now this is the next Munich. And I'll, and I'll basically talk about this. At some point, we're gonna have to get by this because I think this has led to some disastrous foreign policy decisions in the past, and it is something that the United States of America needs to jettison, and they need to get some people with common sense. I, I think if you went to any of these Ivy League schools, you're the ones manning the, manning the store here, And you're either not speaking out, in which case you're gutless, or you're providing incompetent advice. And I'll call out the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Basically, a trained monkey could provide the advice that these people do. And I think that they're absolute losers. We need a new foreign policy establishment with common sense because it consistently led to the United States. And now they're leading us into a situation where I think potentially we have a risk of a nuclear exchange that in my view is 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 not worth the price. Now, of course, even with nukes, if there does come a point where even if the country has nuclear weapons, yeah, there's a point where we have to take that risk. I mean, if, if Russia starts attacking Alaska, we gotta exchange. If if North Korea starts lobbying bombs at Guam you got to respond. So I'm not saying that we should just cower in fear with the prospect of nuclear weapons. There does come a line that we that must not be crossed. Um, similar to the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, you know, Kennedy risked a nuclear exchange because the Soviets are putting offensive nuclear weapons, you know, 70 miles away from that state's soil. So I'm not saying there's never a risk, but I'm saying in this particular context, it is not worth the risk to alienate Russia or to even risk even a small chance of a nuclear exchange. And no one seems to bring it up other than we've looked at it, and the risk seems relatively low because, of course, Russia knows that if they use nukes, we use nukes, and everything's going to go from there. And I, I think that that point of view is, is inept. Um, it, I think it, it underestimates the, pro- the prospect of how vertical that uh, government currently is, the amount of power that he still does wield. And what were to happen if he feels all is lost and there's a risk of miscalculation, which was, of course, the classic fear of having nuclear weapons among countries that we've been fearing for the last 55 years. So first off, in terms of the Russian point of view, I am not trying to justify any aspect of this hostility. But I do just want to point out, I think some things that are just facts that cannot be denied and one of the things that drives me absolute nuts is when people talk about all these fears of nato as being on the part of russia as to be just total fantasy and that and that nato would never act in an offensive way against russian territory and nato would never act in a way that threatens nato and threatens russia and I think I just want, as a backdrop, I just want to establish some baseline facts that I think cannot be denied. And I won't get into the weeds of, you know, the Crimean conflict of the 1850s, but I think three moments over the last, well, I'll even go four moments over the last 200 years are undeniable. Let's just start with fact one. Napoleon did invade Russia, deep into Russia, in the early nineteenth century, that that's just a fact. It was a major violation of its own sovereignty. For whatever reason, Napoleon was in the mindset that he felt he needed to strike deep into the heart of Russia. And of course, he lost, and Russia repelled him. And as a result of that, we have that beautiful war of eighteen twelve melody. I think that's ode to joy, is that, or something like that? one, one of these Russian composers. Maybe it was Tchaikovsky that did that. You know the one I'm talking about. But it, it was repelled. That's fact one. Okay? Fact two is the Soviet Union was birthed during World War One, in which the monarchy collapsed for a complicated set of reasons. There's the cause and fact to it, the Bolsheviks and the other agents that were trying to undermine the Russian um, monarchy, but, of course, the, the one of the significant causes was World War I. I think few would say that it would be very likely to have occurred, that is, the Russian Revolution, if the Russian army had not been involved in the Eastern Front during World War I, it did weaken the monarchy and led to a revolution in which the leader, the Tsar, was toppled and subsequently executed by the Soviets. Now, of course, in that case, the Russians themselves, Took out the leadership, but the point remains that the leadership did invade, and did die literally because of a conflict arising in Europe. That's just fact two. Fact three the German state did double cross the Soviet state and engage in Operation Barbarossa in World War II. And the the Russians lost, I think, to the tune of 20 to 25 million dead during that conflict. And that was because of an encroachment upon its own territory. That's just a fact. You can argue the relevance of whether we would ever do such a thing again, that is the Western powers, but these are just facts. Hundreds of millions of people have died through those corridors. right? Now, if you're on the recipient of that in the last 200 years and you're a leader and your sworn duty is to defend the state, it doesn't strike me as a fantasy or just a totally fabricated reason to say that on three different occasions, two of which there is a hostile power, World War I obviously is a super complicated issue, but it did topple the Russian monarchy. And then fact four, Trust me, I'm no fan of the Soviet Union, but just fact four, then for the next 70 years, each nation state, the United States and Russia, were engaging in kind of a proxy conflict in various theaters, of course, in Vietnam. And this led to enormous amount of tension. Now, again, I'm not finding fault. I'm the United States guy. I think that we had a better position, but it's certainly a hostile power and NATO was not supporting the Soviet Union at the time, obviously. And that, of course, just ended in the early 90s, which was when, of course, the Soviet state collapsed and Ukraine became free from the Soviet Union, which to me also makes this somewhat enormously complicated. As you know, the Soviet Union virtually crumbled under its own weight It was a uh, catastrophic event for the Russian people, the Russian psyche. I think this has to be a fact. Um, And so during that time, Ukraine declared its independence from Russia. Russia had a very weak leadership at that time and was not able to stop the Ukrainians from declaring their independence because they themselves were just trying to preserve the Russian state itself. And Ukraine started an independence. Now, again, everyone recognizes them as an independent state. But the other fact that I think remains is that Ukraine is right on the border of Russia. And currently, they're about, and so they were part of the same nation state only a little over 30 years ago. In my lifetime, I was 16 years old when this happened. Most of you weren't even born. Some of you older were. You get the longitudinal history here. But this does make it somewhat complicated. And it also makes it complicated in the sense there are, because they were part of the same nation state, there are a large number of Russian speakers in that area who do have a strong allegiance to Russia. There's about 8.3 million Russian speakers. Now, for you, Ukrainian experts there, you can... Quote me what their actual support is, whether it's actually for Russia or whether most of the Russian speakers support um, Ukraine and get into the weeds in that. That's not the point of this. The point is, is I do not think that the conflict here is and that and that the security concerns of Russia are totally fabricated so so he can just have some sort of power play. And that'd be that Vladimir Putin to start. The next world war. I I think that his interests are much more limited than that. And again, I am in no way justifying, supporting, endorsing him invading the Ukraine at all. The only question that I'm trying to answer is why should we support? That is, the United States support the Ukraine. Is it worth? And I think that's what it comes down to in terms of the question that I. Ask and answer. It's only one question, and it's the only question that matters. Is it writ? Is it worth a nuclear exchange to support Ukrainian military in the form of a military support? Now we've said that we're not in active hostilities, and here I want to go into one way in which I think Vietnam actually is a very relevant example. And I'm also going to get into Munich because I think that the shadow of Munich has sort of overwhelmed a lot of foreign policy. And I think most of these people are kind of nerds that didn't do anything in my life in their life. And they went from you know undergraduate to foreign policy and they all read the same books and they all study Munich. And so we'll get a little bit into that. But here's where I think that Vietnam is Absolutely relevant in terms of our own foreign policy um, to the Ukraine. Because of course we don't know how it's going to end up um, related to Ukraine, but I think it's absolutely relevant to our discussion in terms of how whether we should be providing this kind of aid. First off, to provide a gun in a in a conflict, a gun, a missile even for defensive purposes, is a belligerent act. Okay, that is a belligerent act. In other words, that basically places the United States in the position of engaging in acts of belligerent that could be what's called a casus belli um, to the, in the Russian theater, Russian-Ukraine conflict. I think so far, Russia has maintained a stunning, Forbearance um, in terms of not retaliating. I think, in part, because they have too many things to, too many fish to fry, too many issues to deal with. And by fish to fry, I'm speaking metaphorically, of course, that they have not responded so far, but they easily could. And so here's where I think Vietnam absolutely is relevant to our discussion. Because, of course, what it demonstrates is. Um, we all know about the risks of getting bogged down into a time lane. But I think what's good to remember from the Vietnam War is how slowly we got involved. And of course, you military experts are going to say, oh, my God, it's totally different. This is European. This isn't the jungle. There's no aspect of the Soviet Union. This, um, the South Vietnam wasn't willing to defend themselves, whereas the Ukrainians are. We, it's much different. But here's where I think it is. and I get all of that trusting." Here's where I think it actually is quite relevant, the timeline between when the first American died and then when we put the first combat troops in Vietnam. And it was about, basically about 15 years. So this is a timeline and bringing of you experts out there or claim to be experts, correct me if I'm wrong. The first actual advisory group that was sent to Vietnam was sent by President Sherman in 1950. And Truman made took pains to emphasize this was not as combat troops, but just to supervise quote-unquote military equipment to support the French. 1951, he authorizes even more, $150 million. January 1954, the French asked, and of course Vietnam was a colonial um, uh, country operated by the French, Subject to um, French supervision and you know the, the sad legacy of colonialism. But relating to that is the United States started off in the early 50s and they took pains to emphasize that this is just military equipment and we're just providing funding, no combat troops. Of course, in 1954, the French got crushed in the end phu by the uh, Việt, North Vietnamese, or the Vietnamese for, uh, forces, and they sought a negotiated settlement. This, of course, led to the division in the mid-1950s between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. The French troops withdrew in 1956. And here's the, the key point. The United States did not actually lose a death or uh, someone to die um, until January, July 8 of 1959, and combat troops did not start to arrive in Vietnam. That is, on the ground, boots on the ground that we recognize as such. And of course, there were special forces that were there way earlier, and one has to assume that there are in Ukraine now. But that was about in 1965. So the act of making this kind of commitment to put your toe in the water starts this this process whereby you can easily find yourselves in a hostile conflict much quicker than you should. So that's why I think the Vietnam is absolutely relevant. One, just to show how slowly this stuff can evolve. So the question we should be able to ask ourselves is, certainly by providing If if, if you're committing a robbery, and by the way, I'm not assuming that Ukraine is a robbery or a crime or anything like that, but if you provide a gun to someone else who is participating in that act, you are as equally culpable as the person that commits this act. I mean, this is just criminal law 101. And again, the, the Ukrainian state is perfectly entitled to defend itself, perfectly entitled to it. But for the United States, why is it in our interest? And along those lines, Um, Ukraine, of course, has served Russia with great distinction. I think Russia should give them more credit in defeating the Nazis and fighting against Nazi aggression. But what has the United States done for the United States military? What have they done? They, at one point, I think during our operations in Afghanistan, they allowed cargo ships to go to Afghanistan. They did not supply one troop. As far as I can tell, they have not offered um, any military assistance in connection with any of our operations against narco-trafficking or anything along those lines. The only – I'm not aware of anything that they've done. And in terms of our economy, what is the economic benefit that's above and beyond the $100 billion that we've already spent as far as that goes? And for here, I'm going to get into this question of the added complexity of Hunter Hunter Biden. Now, of course, this brings up a lot of people that will say, oh, my God, do you believe in Hunter Biden? You know, you just, it's outrageous. You're like one of those people. No, I'm not. So before we argue about the relevance of Hunter Biden as it applies to United States foreign policy, he, of course, is Joe Biden, the president of our country's son. And before you argue about the relevance of this to our foreign policy in terms of why we're doing what we are, let me just read you a December 23rd, 2020, Um, government report from the U.S. Committee on Finances, Majority Staff Report, um, U.S. Senate Security on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. It's called Hunter Biden, Burisma and Corruption, the Impact on U.S. Government Policy and Related Concerns. Now, of course, the Republicans have been more critical of Hunter Biden. The Democrats think it's it's a Russian counterintelligence operation. But here are basically some of the, the, the topics and the briefing headlines from that report. It says the vice president's office and state departments were aware of, but ignored concerning Hunter Biden's role in the Burisma board. Secretary of State John Kerry falsely claimed he had no knowledge about Hunter Biden's role in Burisma. State department officials viewed Nikola Zoloszewski as a corrupt, odious oligarch, but vice president was was advised not to accuse Zoloszewski of corruption. While Hunter Biden um, served on the board, Burisma's owner, Zalewski, paid a $7 million bribe to Ukraine's prosecutor to close the case. Hunter Biden was a Secret Service protectee while on Burisma's board, that's a fact. Obama administration's and Democrat lobbying firm had consistent and significant contact with former um, Ukrainian official Andrei Elevshensko, and the minority falsely accused the chairman of engaging in a Russian disinformation campaign. Of course, this is kind of in the weeds on this, but I wanted to get to this topic, if you're still here. Um, so here so, and, and again, these are either facts or they're not. And if you have anything to say that these facts aren't true, then then let me know. But here's the executive summary of this. It says, during a time in 2013, 2014, which is when a sort of a Russian affiliated leader um, fled the country. Um, here are some of the facts. It says on April 16, 2014, Vice President met with the son's business partner, Devin Archer, at the White House. That's either true or false, right? It was true. Five days later, Vice President Biden visited Ukraine, and he soon after was described in the press as the public face of the administration's gambling of Ukraine. The day after that visit, on April 22nd, Archer joined the board of Burisma. So, this is either true or it's false. And this is related to Biden's unstinting support. It's almost a blank check that he's given to Ukraine. The day after that visit, Archer joined the board of Burisma. Six days, and remember this is an associate of Hunter Biden. Six days later in April 28th, the British officials seized 23 million from the London bank account of Burisma's owner, Nikola Zolchewski. And 14 days later, on May 12th, Hunter Biden joined the board of Burisma. Over the course of the next several years, Hunter Biden and Devon Archer were paid millions of dollars from a corrupt Ukrainian oligarch. Now, for those of you who are gonna basically say like, oh my gosh, this is just this is just another example of just watching too much Fox News and it's just total BS. Well, just go to MSNBC and read their reports from, May of 2022, this year, where they talk about this huge coke problem, all the money that he made from Burisma. And the question is, is, is that affecting a foreign policy right now? Because not only is Biden giving all these uh, Ukrainian military, all these weapons, he's basically has not, he's he's on record of saying he has not provided a lot of direction as to how they're to use these weapons. So, we're supplying weapons to a nation state that's engaged into an, a hostile conflict with the state of Russia. And again, I think for legitimate self defense purposes, we're providing very little guidance as to how they should be used, because, of course, they are their own sovereign states. And within the last three or four months, a Ukrainian missile accidentally fell on Polish territory, leading some to. Consider whether NATO would start invoking Article 5 of its self-defense charter. Friends, this is insanity. And no one's debating this. And, and, you know, and again, related to Hunter Biden, before you put on your, like, bleeding-heart liberal, like, oh, my gosh. And the other thing I can say about this, the incompetence here is, is bipartisan. Uh, there's been, I think, only one standalone bill, um, uh, I believe it was in May of last year, to fund the Ukrainian conflict from the United States. It passed the House 368 to 57, and it passed the Senate from 86 to 11. The only public theory figure that I have, that I have a lot of respect for, um, that criticized it immensely, is Tulsi Gabbard, and of course, now she's being accused of being some kind of Russian mole, And... Rand Paul has been, I think, a voice of at least reason, although even that's kind of measured as far as that goes. No one's debating this. And, you know, we surprisingly enough, where I got this information related to the budget, it's from the Center of Strategic Policies, written by a Mark Kansian, who is a retired Marine colonel and senior advisor with the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic International Studies in Washington, D.C., and surprisingly enough, it's part of a series on quote unquote, critical questions is produced by the Center for Strategic International Studies as a private tax exempt institution focusing on public policy issues. Um, and, I, and I just sort of ask, ask you, and they also say that the purpose of this organization, the Center for Strategic International Studies, is to address the world's greatest challenges and also to work towards peace. And yet they're basically asking the United States to play Russian roulette with a nuclear armed power. And friends, to me, that is um, bordering on incompetence. And I, I wish that weren't true, but I'm just not seeing any debate that's taking place relating to this. Um, and I think we should have that because, you know, in the in one of the things in terms of Vietnam, one of the reasons why it did happen, there's a lot of reasons why it did, but of course it was the slow incrementalism that happened over and over and over and over again. And surprisingly enough, John F. Kennedy, who was one of the persons that kind of really started to ratchet it up, wrote this book called Why England Slept. And it was about the choices that England made in the rise up, to the taking power of the Nazis and you know what could have been done differently. And then here we have in Vietnam, a 15-year time period, and here we are giving weapons that Ukraine is using to advance to a Russian a nuclear state. Now, one of the things that is different, I think relating to Vietnam, is of course, one huge difference. There's a lot of differences, I totally get that. But the North Vietnamese did not have nukes. And that is a huge difference. So when we engaged in our war in, in Vietnam, the North Vietnamese did not have nuclear weapons. And I, In my opinion on this may even change if, if the Russians did not have nukes, but they do. They have the most number of nukes in the world to the tune of approximately 6,000 nuclear warheads. This also gets me to this question of aggression. And so I think if you, if you're going to try to answer the question that I pose, this question of the why question, well, if we don't interfere here and support Ukraine, who will Vladimir Putin toppled next? And I think that's absolutely a reasonable question. But the question for that is, is how often throughout world history has that not been the case? Where, you know, what, it's, it's in essence a domino theory 2.0. So one of the main reasons for our intervention in South Vietnam was this notion that if we didn't topple, if we wouldn't support this nation state, and all the rest were going to fall under the arms of communism, and they were going to link up in world dominion, and everyone was going to be conquered. And have we? What happened after the United States pulled out? South Vietnamese lost. The North Vietnamese took over the country, and nothing happened. No additional communist states emerged in that part of the world. Um, you know, there were some, and you know, in, in, in you know, there obviously were some, you know, there was Cambodia, but that was sort of happening during the 70s time period. And one can argue that even that kind of arose as a result of some of the power vacuums and stresses that the United States foreign policy placed on them. Now. So, what would happen if so in Russia? one in Ukraine, and the whole state collapsed, would they be seeking to topple Poland? And, you know, maybe, maybe not, but I just don't think if you look at the history of their foreign policy in the last 30 years, and you just line it up in a chart, how often have they acted in an offensive capacity where they projected their power abroad? They've had some limited incursions, I think, well, obviously, Chechnya, which was part of its own state, the Russian state, and now they're, of course, allied with Russia. There were some conflicts in 2008 2008 timeframe relating to Georgia and Moldova. There are other things that they've been involved with, but this is sort of complicated because, again, all these states were part of the Soviet Union that was dominated by the Russian state. So in terms of what would happen if we didn't um, support Ukraine and if if they fell, would Russia conquer the world? Well, I mean, they haven't yet. And there's no indication that they will. And And it's just not at all. And whatever risk there is, and I think here's the ultimate question, whatever risk there is in terms of what Russia would do, pales into comparison to the risk of a nuclear exchange, which to me would be absolutely catastrophic. And Russia has not used a nuclear weapon since its inception in an offensive capacity. The United States has twice. And again, we can have a whole debate about whether it should or shouldn't have, but that did happen in 1945. So um, I don't think this case has been made. There seemingly is no debate on this. And I am going to offer a solution that's going to bring about world peace and is going to solve this thing. And it's it's just a basic knowledge here that I think is going to solve this. And a lot of you are going to wince when you first hear it, but just hear me out. I think it's a good idea. We need a new Warsaw Pact. The most active and the most vocal of the uh opponents to russian policy here is poland and they have every reason to be outraged by the russian activities in ukraine and of course the warsaw pact was a soviet era mutual defense treaty between the soviet union albania bulgaria romania east germany poland czechoslovakia at the time and again the, the soviet union and romania so of course That wasn't totally voluntary, but that was a mutual defense agreement between the Soviet republics and those states. And of course, after the fall of communism, that essentially fell apart. But here's what I would propose. What if Poland, along with Finland and the Ukraine, would form a new, well, possible Ukraine, But Poland, Sweden, and Finland, who of course were not part of the original uh, Warsaw Pact, but also Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary. Hungary was also part of the Warsaw Pact. What if they agreed to essentially have a self-defense treaty whereby they would declare themselves neutral as between NATO and Russia? And I think the other ones that could join would be ex-Soviet republics could join this. So this would be a very significant collective security unit. But the one condition for the NATO and Russia to accept this would be that they must remain neutral. Each side would be able to buy weapons from the other, but NATO tanks and Russia would both agree not to enter this new polish-led security organization. And this would allow Russia to save face. That would actually shrink NATO. It would make the Central European states put their money where their mouth is, because my pet peeve here is they're throwing all these haymakers, and yet we're the ones that would have to go to war um, if ultimately they they were attacked. And each side would essentially, and of course, there'd be details to, to be worked out, but this would have the effect of allowing. Putin declared that he that he won, and the United States to get a more limited role and not support and get involved in every single conflict. Would you really want your son or daughter to be sent over to Ukraine um, to fight a battle against something that ha- and, and risk nuclear war for this battle between two states? I don't think so. So this has been kind of my long rant. I hope I have been able to at least get you to think about some of this stuff, um, add my voice. You know, my podcast has an audience between 30 and 50. It's going to be a drop in the bucket. And of course, no one gives a shit what I think. But um, I nevertheless felt that this was something that was important to do because it just doesn't seem to have been a debate um, regarding this. And I think that is a huge problem. We need to be able to have a debate about the Russian roulette that our government is playing with our future. And I think they're unnecessarily placing us at risk. And again, one of the things I want to make crystal clear is that in terms of humanitarian aid to Ukraine, yes. And maybe there might be certain small arms that I would support um, with Ukraine, yes. But often, you know, military assistance to the magnitude that we have, it is not our conflict. Would Ukraine come to the United States assistance if we were invaded by another power? No, of course they would. And Yet we are engaged in nuclear precipice because of a conflict between new two nation states, eight to 10,000 from our border. That just does not make any sense to me. So that is my rocky cast for today. Um, it is way beyond the topic of stuff I normally talk about, but it just not seemed to be a topic that was covered. Um, you know, and I think that hopefully we can you know learn that we don't always have to rely. And I guess maybe the other thing I would just say is that so much of the I mean think about this, in Vietnam, so much of these were well, these are the top foreign policy minds in the world, and they let us down this disastrous path. And now here we are. We all claim to have learned these lessons, yet we're we're slowly engaging into a similar trajectory up against a nuclear armed state. And even if we quote unquote win and they collapse, that's going to be horrible. So I hope this at least resonates with some of you, um, whether you're in the S- Russia or whether in Ukraine. Peace to both of you. I hope you can. Resolve this. I am huge fans of your, of your country. And of course, the Russ original were Vikings. It's a topic I'm really interested in. There's a lot of common heritage. I love the Russian people. I love Ukraine. I love you all. And I hope you can get that settled um, between the two of you. Um, but you're in you know, Ukraine. You have every right to not make any compromises, but then you have to pack it up. You cannot ask the United States to back up your hostile position. And Russia, you've been a bad boy too. And you need to get your shit together and not, you know, impose this kind of risk. So that's where we've been. I hope to get back to doing health videos. I'm probably not going to get any lessons on this particular one, but this is one that I just had to get off my chest. and it's kind of, like a guess, therapy for me. I've just been wondering to my own self why we're not having more of a debate um, on this very, very important topic. And, um, you know, hopefully this is one molecule notion of information on this, but it is my molecule and it is something that I wanted to at least say, you know, I'm a Lutheran, here I stand on this. We should not be providing this kind of military aid to Ukraine, both both Biden as well as Republican elites are providing incompetent leadership to this country and they need to get their act together and stop this right now, and let the Ukrainians and the Russian people resolve this um, between two nation-states. That's all for the Rocky Cast. Hopefully every episode isn't so heavy, but this is my voice, this is my podcast, and I can talk about whatever the hell I want on this. Infinite gratitude to each one of you that has listened to this podcast. We're going to continue to put out high-quality content, hopefully more frequently than we have been. I've been really busy, but we are going to be continuing out uh, high-quality content, most of which will be much lighter than this episode, but I had to get, kind of get this one off my chest. So keep tuning into the Rocky Cast. Leave a positive review on Apple, Spotify, all places where podcasts are heard. Until next time, on the Rocky Cast.